Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Allwood. I'm Dirk the Dice. We have once again called upon Dirk to act as our stunt Matt for this episode, because Matt is still recovering from COVID. But we'll have some good news on that in a moment. And this episode we're discussing Takashi Miike's surreal 2003 gangster horror film, Gozu. Before we get into all that milky stuff, however, what is going on? Ho, ho, ho! It's Merry Christmas! If you're listening to this when it comes out, Merry Christmas 2021. And uh, Scott, you have some seasonal greetings to uh, share with the listeners as well, I think. Yes, all being well. By the time this goes out, we will have done our reading of our Christmas ghost story, The Canterville Ghost by Oscar Wilde, on the Discord server by now. Our plan is to have recorded the whole thing, and it should be appearing in your podcast feed as special episodes around now. Apologies for the lack of detail. We are recording this in advance, and I'm making assumptions about how quickly I can edit it and get it out. If it isn't there yet, be patient and it will be soon. And this is the last call for issue eight of The Blasphemous Tome. If you want a a signed copy, you can head on over to patreon.com slash goodfriendsofjacksonelias and anybody backing us there at the $5 level and above before the end of 2021, that's your deadline, will receive a signed copy from myself, Scott and Matt. And if you need any further details about how to back us, what's in the tome, all that good stuff, check out the show notes and there'll be links with all the information you could possibly want. And we have some news from the Sanderson household. Matt is very much on the mend and will be joining us again for the next episode. But all this has meant that there's been a slight delay to our production. So the Christmas cards are going out very soon, but the tome, the Blasphemous Tome issue 8, will be delayed and will be going out in January 2022. Now on to our main topic, Gozu. Gozu, or Yakuza Horror Theatre Gozu, is a 2003 comedy horror crime film from prolific Japanese director Takashi Miike. As usual, we'll dig into the story looking for inspiration for our games, and then afterwards we'll all relax with a nice warm glass of milk. Now, we should probably give some content warnings here, I'm just not sure where to start, because this film is full of fucked up shit. I mean, not as bad as some of Miike's films, but, I mean, there's obviously a lot of body horror in it, there's a lot of weird sexual stuff, there is a lot of breast milk, a lot of, so much breast milk, and we'll skirt over, I think, some of the more graphic details, Not, not that it's too graphic a film, but if any of that stuff sounds like it's going to make you queasy, then be warned. So, Takashi Miike, just who is this fellow? He's made something like 100 films over the past 30 years, largely shifting between gangster films, horror, black comedy, and, yeah, outright weirdness. And Gozu very much combines all of these. It is funny in parts mm. as a film. I don't think it's laugh-out-loud funny, but your mileage may vary. I do. 
<laughs> yeah, you would, Scott. But um, <laughs> I, I mean, I saw this film, I don't know, 10 or more years ago. And I think there's certain parts of it that stuck with me, mm. but the black comedy didn't really stick with me. So when I watched it again, I was a little like surprised, I think, by the tone of it. Yeah, it uses that slapstick kind of horror comedy that you sometimes see in Tashiki Kitano's films mm. uses that very physical comedy and sometimes I think it varies on the juvenile the comedy in this I think it goes yeah. for the sick joke I think I laughed out loud but I felt guilty afterwards I felt like I had <laughs> yes. to apologize to somebody for <laughs> laughing yeah yeah and it is, I think, as well as the slapstick, there is a lot of comedy from the discomfort of the situations, both social and physical discomfort. It's quite a disgusting film in places, but in a way that, yeah, both shocks and I'd say amuses. But again, I mean, that probably says more about me than I'd like to. <laughs> yeah. It is an incredible output, though, isn't it? Um, it's something like mm. five films every year. Not all of them feature films, but nevertheless, yeah. quite a production mm. rate. Yeah. Though I think he's only really been known in the West, I'd say, for the last 20 years or so, a little over 20 years. My first exposure to him was through his 1999 film Audition, based on the Ryu Murakami novel of the same name. That film absolutely blew me away when I saw it. And he certainly had plenty of other films that have done well in the West. Vista Q, I can't remember, it might have come out between Audition and Gozu. That film, I bounced off hard. As much as Gozu seems to be trying to shock and, and confuse, Vista Q is like that dialed up to 11, but I found it really quite repellent. There was Itchy the Killer which is one of his many, many Yakuza films, which personally didn't work for me, but I know most people love. The Happiness of the Categories, which is this sort of weird musical horror comedy with lots of clamation, and I found quite endearing. One Missed Call, which I think was one of his more successful films in the West, and I think as generic a film as he's made. Have, have either of you seen that one? No, I've, I've not seen that one. It is pretty much a by-the-numbers sort of J-horror film of the period. And when I saw it, I didn't realise that it was Mike who'd made it, or at least I, you know, I didn't clock his name on the credits. And I was really surprised afterwards when I learned it was him, just because it didn't really seem to have any of his trademark weirdness in it. No, it's very different, isn't it? It's very much, mm. like you say, just a much more straight horror film. Yeah. I mean, I remember seeing Audition at the cinema, and I'd been out for a little drink beforehand and it was <laughs> warm in the cinema and dark. And I thought this is a fairly pedestrian film about an out-of-work actor trying to mm. find work. And <laughs> I might have drifted off to sleep and then <laughs> what? Woke, woken up to the sound of kick, 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 and a needle facing me at the screen. I don't think I've quite recovered. You didn't sleep through the mailbag scene, did you? <laughs> No, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I, I love that film. I really would like to sit down and watch it with someone someday who doesn't know what it is and just tell them that it's a romantic comedy. Yes. <laughs> 
I think I watched one of his earlier ones, and I can't remember the name of it now, because he does have, a, like you say, a great range of things. Oh, God, yeah. It was about trading in body parts, because... There was that thing, wasn't it, in the 90s, uh, that urban myth about body parts. I think uh, Stephen Fraze did a film called Dirty Pretty Things about a similar oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, topic about kidneys being stolen and that kind of thing. And I do think that when we look at this film, it is settled in like urban myth. He kind of uses urban myths in his Yakuza movies uh, quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, even the title Gozu comes from an urban myth. The title literally means cowhead. And it refers to this weird urban myth, which has got nothing to do with the plot of the film, but this weird urban myth about a story that is so dangerous or so horrifying that if you read it, you'll die of fright. And the idea is that it's been cut up into lots of different pieces and scattered all over the place. And people keep encountering parts of it. And even reading little bits of it is just so horrifying that, you know, it risks madness and injury. So it's it's very much a, a sort of king and yellow type thing. We have a local Gozu legend in Bolton. Uh, so there's a, a part of Bolton called West Horton and it's known as Cowyed City. Cowyed City <laughs> locally. And it's because a farmer got a cow's head stuck in a fence. And rather than <laughs> cut the fence, he cut the cow's head off. <laughs> Cowyed City. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> I take it the cow didn't get a vote on this. <laughs> well, that's a that's a heartwarming Christmas tale right there, Dirk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the other things Mickey's known for, at least in the West, is that about 15 years ago, there was a TV program called Masters of Horror on Showtime in the US. It was all these standalone one-hour horror stories shot by famous film directors. So it was people like Dario Argento and John Landis, uh, Don Cossarelli, and Stuart Gordon actually made two of them. And Takeshi Miike's star was on the rise at the time, and he was invited to director segment and Showtime saw it and thought, we can't put this out. And it was the only one of the series that wasn't broadcast. They did include it on the DVD, and I've seen it, a story called Imprint, which is all about uh, an abortionist. Yeah, a challenging story. <laughs> and yeah, it was, it was interesting to see where American cable TV drew the line. And apparently you draw the line with Takashi Miike. Gozo was written by Sakichi Sato, who also collaborated with Miike on Ichi the Killer and has directed a number of features of his own. The script was written quickly with Sato drawing from his subconscious. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> Along with nods to Japanese and Greek mythology. Apparently much of the dialogue was improvised. Again, that does feel quite credible. And now an overview of the story of Gozu. We open up with a Yakuza gang meeting in a restaurant. One of their number, Ozaki, warns the boss, Ishibashi, that a chihuahua on the street is actually a specially trained Yakuza killing dog. Ozaki rushes out and beats the dog to death. 
This is like the first minute of the film, and it pretty much sets the tone, because, I mean, he doesn't just go out and kill the dog. He grabs it by the lead, smashes it up and down, just turns this thing into puree, just this little white chihuahua that's sitting outside. It's a one-shocking, isn't it? It's a one-shocking, yeah. but it's also this tone of slapstick, because yeah. it's quite funny when he's swinging it around his head. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of the scene in, um, I think it's a fish called Wonder when the old lady's okay. dog is run over. And I remember the Monty Python team or John Cleese talking about that and saying that, well, obviously they weren't going to use an actual dog, but they used like a, you know, something that was quite clearly like a stuffed toy dog. And then it's funny. Whereas if it looks more realistic, it's not funny. Yeah. And I think the same with this. I mean, you describe it as being gory, Scott. I don't think it is gory. I think we're left with the impression of him stamping yeah. into pieces. We don't actually see blood and guts. We see like no, a, no. a white fluffy bundle. Uh, but also, I just want to point out at the start there, when the film begins, I had to check my TV sound was working all right, because I thought, have I got a loose connection? Because they're watching in the cafe, there's a, a small TV up in the corner of the cafe, and they're watching a very bizarre, badly distorted image and badly distorted sound. And at the end of the film, I went back and watched that again. It doesn't really shed much light on anything to me at least but it does set a weird tone right at the beginning yeah. of the film a very sort of serious strange mindset that it kind of puts you into i think actually i should have checked this but there is a bit later in the film where you encounter some distorted words mm. as well there is i wonder in retrospect it's not the same dialogue is it yeah i'm not sure the distorted tv set reminded me something of ring and i think mm. Mm. you're right paul what, what it does immediately it sets the tone that this is out of joint something's not quite right about yeah. the mental landscape that we're going to be taken into and i think immediately following it by that shocking scene and hello scene it kind of wrong foots you i think this opening segment it straight away you're put in a in an unusual place and i think before we get into all the sort of weirdness of the film and the strange sort of journey it goes on it is worth thinking here ozaki who is the guy that goes out and kills the dog he says to his boss everything i'm going to tell you now is a joke or, or something like yes. that, doesn't it? Everything yeah. now is, is in humour. And it very much felt like he was speaking to us, the audience at that point, I felt. Mm, he was saying yes. to us, everything yeah. I'm going to tell you now is a, is a joke, which is a weird setup, I felt. Yeah. And then he goes out and like kills this dog, which is a Yakuza-killing dog. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not just the dog that's a Yakuza-killing entity, is it? Because in the the next scene, we encounter a specially modified Yakuza killing car, which is also interestingly white. And just a regular car. Well, is it? Okay, so we got this, this scene where Ozaki is out on the road. He's being driven by Minami, his junior in the organisation. And Ozaki spots, yeah, this white car following them and says, yeah, they, this is a specially modified Yakuza killing car. And there's the scene where basically they pull over, block the road, pull out their guns. And Ozaki runs over and threatens the woman behind the wheel of the car. And she is just grinning at him inanely. She's got blood running out of her nose. And Minami runs over and clubs Ozaki and stops him from shooting the woman. Then the woman just drives off in the weirdest way possible, reversing backwards, swerving all over the road. 
road. And you can say, yes, all right, Ozaki is, is completely off the wall here. He's paranoid. He's inventing all this stuff. On the other hand, the woman in the car were pretty fucking weird. <laughs> so is he wrong? <laughs> what might that a chihuahua done if, if it had been given the chance? Maybe he saved his boss. Yeah. And at this point, this is where Minami intervenes, doesn't he, to knock him out. Yeah. Um, to prevent him from killing the driver. And he calls Ichibashi back at base camp at the restaurant and he, he's told that he's become too erratic and he's ordered to kill him and take his body to the dump where they've got this place where they get rid of any unwanted Yakuza have crossed the line or any, any un unwanted associates. So that sets up the task for Minami, doesn't it? I want to make the point as well that a big deal is made of Minami being a virgin. Mm. And I think that is relevant because mm. I do think he fulfills the role a bit like Howie in The Wicker Man. It's through, from this point on, from Miami's eyes, we will see the world that he gets drawn into, a bit like uh, Howie in uh, The Wicker Man. I've certainly read interpretations in the film where they're talking about how this is very much Minami's sexual awakening and him trying to come to terms with his physical love uh, for his boss, for Izaki. But, well, <laughs> we'll get into that as it goes on. Now, whilst heading to the dump, Minami is forced to do an emergency stop when the camera pans back and we see that the road has abruptly stopped and there's a lake in front of him. The unconscious Ozaki at this point, who's in the back of the car, as the car slams the brakes on, he flies forward, hits his head, and when we look at him in the back of the car, he appears dead or he is dead. I mean, take your pick, but, you know, he sat there with his eyes closed. And Minami drives to, to use a payphone at the next sort of diner he comes to, and uh, he just props Ozaki up in the back of the car <laughs> and puts the guy's sunglasses on again. And it's an open top car. Not that that's too important, but it's a bit weekend at Bernie's this one. Isn't <laughs> it really it? He, is. He, yeah. he props him up, try to make him look like he's uh, sitting there. Yeah, and then he just goes into this uh, diner. But it's not just any diner. <laughs> no, it really isn't. <laughs> What's it like, Scott? Have you been to anywhere like this? Not exactly. Anywhere no. like this in New Bradwell? Not yet, but one can hope. But the diner, I mean, for a start, I mean, the first person he encounters, isn't it, is this sort of aging rocker who's on the payphone that he wants to use, who's got just this stack of, what is it, 100 yen pieces, and is just feeding them in over and over again. And is having this circular conversation about the weather, where we're talking about what the weather was like the previous day. I can't remember whether it was too hot or too cold, but whatever it was, it was sort of, I told him it was hot yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I told him it was hot yesterday. He didn't believe me, but I told him it was hot. And just this over and over I was over wearing a t-shirt. <laughs> uh, and the restaurant seems to be entirely staffed by, I don't think they're meant to be trans women. I, I think they're meant to be cross-dressing men. But anyway, gender non-conforming people, particularly the waiter who presents as entirely male, apart from the fact that he's wearing a see-through shirt with a white bra underneath. I'm sorry, a black bra underneath. So Manami having a bit of time to kill while he's waiting for this guy to finish on the phone, goes over, orders a cup of coffee, 
and is told that it comes with a complimentary mug of what is later described as chicken custard. And I don't know if this is a real thing. I don't want it to be a real thing. But yeah, it looked like chicken soup, but he describes it later as chicken custard, which is not a combination of words I like. (laughs) And inevitably, this makes him very sick. He runs off to the lavatory, vomits, and when he comes back, Azaki is missing. I think you can put forward an idea that the food poisoning at this point means that everything beyond this point is a delusion, a hallucinogenic fever-induced <laughs> hallucination that he experiences from having the chicken custard. Wow. <laughs> Do you think so? Okay. And it might explain something that happens at the very end, but we'll get to that. Like the final scene, the very yes. final image. Yes, yes, I, I can just about yeah. see that, but we'll come to that. Uh, so, desperate, Minami calls his Ishibashi for help, catching his boss in the middle of a sex act involving a ladle. A middle of a sex act involving a ladle. <laughs> yes. Ishibashi tells Minami to seek help from the Shirami crew and gives him an address. So, yeah, the ladle. I mean, the ladle becomes important later on. So we discover basically that Ishibashi can only achieve sexual gratification if he anally stimulates himself with the handle of a ladle. At this point, Scott, I would say that this is Chekhov's anal ladle. (laughs) The anal ladle is presented at this point. Because it's going to have narrative significance later. (laughs) Can I just say how much fun the phrase anal ladle is to say? (laughs) (laughs) It has a musicality to it that is completely at odds with the visual image. Also, why is he answering the phone at that point? (laughs) I mean, I know that's like the least of our concerns, but... <laughs> well, that's some multitasking right there. It is. Yeah. When you're a busy Yakuza boss, you can't afford not to take phone calls, even yeah. if you are in Mitt's ladle. <laughs> when I ring people up now, I am going to be wondering what they're doing. <laughs> wondering what kitchen implement they have inserted up their rectum. <laughs> Let's move on quickly. <laughs> we did tell you this was a not really. I mean, <laughs> if this is a Christmas movie for you, I pity you. sorry that we're bringing this up oh i don't know i've seen worse at christmas well okay my statement stands so Marinami follows this address and it turns out to be a buddhist monastery he speaks to a monk there the monk tells Minami to go and ask the police for help which seems like an odd thing to ask of a yakuza but Minami goes off and does it anyway but this proves to be a dead end but as he drives away from there, the police station, he runs over a bone, which gives his car a flat tyre. And Al just sat off. He's sort of in this uh, kind of urban wasteland and just sat in this, uh, I don't know, a way off is a guy. I think he's reading a magazine or something. Yeah. Who we come to know as Nozechi. And he claims to have a strange skin condition. What it looks like is he's just kind of got like white clay sort of smothered on one side of his face in an oval because the camera pans up close and it's all kind of cracking and drying off like a face pack just on one side. I mean, it's very definitely that because every now and then he reaches up and rubs bits of it and mm. just falls off. <laughs> so he offers to take Minami to the scrapyard to get a replacement tyre. Doesn't sound like the best place to get a tyre to me. 
but that's where they go. The scrapyard turns out to be the headquarters of the Shiroyama crew, who Minami was, of course, looking for. After Minami answers a riddle to get the crew's help, the boss assigns Noshichi to assist him. With night coming on, Noshichi takes Minami to nearby Masakusa Inn. Now, this scene with the riddle is just, well, I was about to say it's weird, but I mean, it's just one weird scene in a whole weird film. But you've got this really intense sort of Yakuza sub-boss in charge of this scrapyard who, what is it he says? He presents it with the riddle and he says that you have 30 seconds to answer this. If you answer it correctly, I will give you the help you need. Otherwise, I will take something very important from you. <laughs> and I was vaguely disappointed that he ended up getting the riddle right because I wanted to see what that looked like. <laughs> There's something very intimidating about Nose Cheat actually doing the countdown, isn't there? Um, yes. To it. Yeah. It, is, it is kind of a very strange scene. And before we get to the uh, motel, which is a place <laughs> in itself, isn't it? But oh, yes. I think at this point it's worth saying that you can see the artistry in the way that the images are composed in this film because he very much uses frames within frames, doesn't he? So the caravan mm. becomes a different, there's different outlines of the characters and in unusual places and the cameras positioned in the strange places to make the whole setup of it as very disturbing and as though everything's slightly out of joint even before we get to the next place. Well, it certainly goes out of joint at the inn. <laughs> yes. It's owned by middle-aged sister and brother team who take a little too much interest in their guests. While Minami is bathing before dinner, the woman walks in and offers to wash his back before offering him some breast milk. Some of her breast milk. Yes, indeed. Now, to me, this is like the Wicker Man scene with Willow, seduction <laughs> of Howard. <laughs> Right, but slightly yeah. <laughs> different, <laughs> differently. Yeah, uh, no, there is a kind of choreograph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. M- much creepier, much creepier. And this whole inn is creepier. I forget the house that dripped blood. This is the inn that dripped milk. It just seems to ooze from everywhere. So we see Minami having an evening meal, and as he's finishing up, there is milk that is dripping from a light fixture overhead into his soup. Happily, he's had more than enough food at this stage because he's been given a second complimentary meal alongside this one, almost like they were serving someone else who wasn't there. And then the following morning, he wakes up to breakfast and he's been given, I think, three breakfasts this time. Yeah. It's like an, an increasing number of meals. It's that there are increasing numbers of absent people. Well, they do say service is our inn's motto. Mm. And the camera takes particular interest in that bowl of rice. Yeah. And what mm. is concealed under the rice. I was trying to get close to the screen, trying to work out what it is. Because it seems to indicate that there's something beneath it that is uh, strange and unusual. Oh, I missed that. Every time it whipped round to the uh, courses, it... It honed in on this particular bowl of rice. The reason it homes in on the rice, as we'll discover, is the ingredients that went into it are quite significant because they come up as Minami gets into his investigation as to what happened to Azaki. 
Ah. And also, apparently, this dish that he's been served, I googled it because it seemed to be significant. I think they describe it as red rice. So I looked at the recipe for it. And yeah, I mean, the recipe is, as they say, glutinous rice, red beans, and sesame. But apparently, it is a special meal that is served for celebrations. So there seems to be a significance there that, again, is eluding me. Mm. Noshchi drives Minami back to the diner. The strange old men Minami met the previous day are back in the silver tracksuits. Noshchi knows them from school and ditches Minami to talk to them. So Minami goes back to the inn. Now, the innkeeper reveals her brother can channel spirits. I mean, that's great, isn't it? In a Call of Cthulhu game, just a random hotel you've stayed at, but you know, one of them can channel spirits, <laughs> apparently. And offers to find Ozaki this way, this, this missing guy, this dead guy from the back of the car who's disappeared. That's who we're looking for. And maybe this guy from the inn can channel his spirit. Their process involves, well, largely the sister beating her brother with a riding crop while he just sort of screams and tries to keep her away from him. Like really beating him. Like yeah. Really? yeah. I mean, like, like raising blood levels of beating. Yeah, I'm not sure any spirits were channeled here. But. <laughs> Again, it's one of those things, isn't it, that is a simultaneously terrifying but funny mm. for some reason. Yeah. There's something about the way that it's done and the brother desperately saying, I can't, I can't, I cannot summon spirits. And she's there <laughs> beating him. Um, yeah. And he's pleading yeah. with them, please leave me it's alone. It's so <laughs> absurd. Yeah. <laughs> then it gets even more absurd because Nazechi returns just at the tail end of the ritual and he is absolutely terrified of something. And initially he's terrified because the two men he was speaking to at the diner that he went to school with were the leaders of the bad kids at school. And uh, they all seem to be in their 50s now, but apparently this still carries such weight with him that the experience has, has scared him. But also, frighteningly the waiter that served them at the uh, the diner he reveals died three years ago in a car accident and then we have this absolutely bizarre image where the two of them turn around to a door we haven't seen before in this room which is open which we see is a bathroom and there is the waiter squatting there over the ground having a shit and the two men just pinch their noses and then the whole thing carries on as if that hadn't just happened very noisy shit as well isn't it a very yeah. noisy one <laughs> i mean this is i think out of all the weird scenes in this film, this is the one that feels the most absolutely dreamlike. Because I'm assuming this is a fairly universal thing. Maybe it's just me, but I've I've had this experience many times <laughs> in dreams of an implication of something coming up or a or someone being mentioned. And then all of a sudden they're there, just the idea of that door suddenly being there because the guy was mentioned and then the whole thing being swept away that just feels like exactly the kind of thing that happens in mm. dreams happily nozichi's friends have come up with a lead a man matching asaki's description came in looking for glutinous rice whilst minami was being sick they sent him off to a rice shop and the owner of the rice shop tells minami Minami, Minami, I'll settle on one eventually, that <laughs> this man also wanted red beans and sesame. So he sent him to a nearby liquor store. 
At the liquor store, the owner's American wife tells Minami that she has sent the man off to the inn. There's a great bit here when Minami is listening to this woman, the American woman, who is speaking Japanese in this store. Very broken Japanese, yeah. Is it? I mean, I didn't really pick up on that particularly. Yeah, the, the way it's subtitled, it indicates that she's sort of stumbling over words and hesitating right. and so on. Yeah. He notices that she's looking up above his head and he looks up and above his head in the sort of above the door of the shop in which he stood, there are these pages and on them is written phonetically the Japanese words that she is speaking in response to what he's just asked her, which is a, mm. a marvellous idea. Very strange. I don't know what we make of that. It's uh... Well, I know exactly what to make of it because I read the IMDb trivia section here. And apparently what happened was the woman playing the wife, uh, this, this American woman, didn't speak Japanese, or at least spoke very basic Japanese. So they did actually use these cue cards up on the wall. She was genuinely reading that out because she didn't speak Japanese. Apparently, Mike thought she was doing a fairly bad job of it because she kept looking up, obviously, and decided to incorporate that into the film. And so just moved the camera around and improvised this reaction shot of Minami looking up and seeing these cue cards and freaking out. That wasn't in the script. It was just him making the best of a weird situation. Hmm. Returning to the inn, Minami goes to the owner's office. He finds the woman milking herself into bottles, ready for sale. She confirms that someone like Ozaki arrived late last night and stayed in the room above Minami. He left rice, beans and sesame behind, so her brother used it to cook breakfast. Ah, there we go. Mm. Yes. So Chekhov's beans <laughs> as well as the <laughs> anal ladle. If you're waiting for the anal ladle, don't worry, it's coming along again soon. <laughs> and it's not the only thing that's coming. <laughs> Manami insists on moving up to this room, and there he dreams of a cow-headed man who's standing there wearing only underpants, and who walks up to Manami and licks his face with this great sticky tongue, leaving this sticky residue all over him that, I guess, is open to all sorts of Freudian interpretations. And the cow-headed man passes Manami a note. When Manami wakes up the following morning, he is still holding the note. Usually, when you're watching a film and something weird happens, and, oh, it was a dream, there's that little twist of, oh, it was a dream, you know? In this, it's not really a twist because it's all fucking weird and then something fucking weird happens, but it was a dream. Well, now we're just back in this weird world. That hasn't helped me. You know? But I will say, I want to just take a brief interlude here, listeners, and say, so far we've talked about over half of Gozu and there's been some strange stuff that's occurred. Keep listening because to me, the strangest stuff ain't happened yet. Oh, no, no, this, this is just setting things up. I think it's... Uh, well done, this scene, actually, with the uh, cow's head. There is something terrifying about it, even though it is ridiculous. Yeah. And the you know the prop's ridiculous, the big tongue that comes out. But I think it goes into this idea that it's highly sexualised for yeah. Minami. He is processing this through his mindset. We are definitely seeing this disjointed, strange world from his point of view. So this note that he gets says Ozaki will meet Minami at the dump 
I'm doing it now. Minami goes there and speaks to the owners. They confirm that they disposed of Azaki's body. So he's like at this big old dump where they crush cars and stuff. And they say, yeah, we crushed him. And we see an image of a car being crushed with like blood coming out. But they say, we've got his skin. And you go into this back room and it's a bit like a dry cleaners. They've got all these like suits hanging in plastic bags because that's what dry cleaners do take your clothes and put them in a plastic bag and we all know that and it's not really clothes though it's not suits it's like dried skin with the yakuza tattoos on them and they say is this your mate is this ozaki and he's like yeah i think so <laughs> i mean i have read of collectors or places who basically get people to will them their skins, people with interesting tattoos, so they can be preserved. Maybe not quite like this, because this is the, the full skin that seems to be intact. It looks like a wetsuit almost, just hanging mm. up there. But apparently, because a lot of Yakuza have got these really elaborate tattoos, particularly back tattoos, that it was very much an identifying feature of Yakuza for a long time that there at least are people who do genuinely collect these skins and tattoos, which I guess must have inspired this. For me, it was a callback, spoiler alert, to Two-Headed Serpent and a particular <laughs> scene in there where the players make a grisly discovery. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> when Miami returns to his car, he finds a young woman in the back seat. She tells him that she is Ozaka, sharing secrets that only Ozaki would know. Confused and alarmed, Minami drives off with her. Yeah, it does take a bit of convincing, and they share secrets, a lot of them referring to Minami's penis. And there's also this story that involves uh, lingerie that Ozaki had bought for Minami to give to any woman that he wanted to sleep with that would, I guess, somehow guarantee this. Givinci yeah. panties, isn't it? Yeah, crotchless panties. They become relevant later. And I think there is a bit of an obsession with uh, Minami's uh, penis, isn't there? It crops yeah. up quite a bit in the bathroom seduction scene it does and uh, in the driving scene. And even when the skin's presented, the penis is pointed out. It's kind of an obsession with it. Now, maybe I've led a sheltered life, but do Givenchy make crotchless underwear? There's a question for our listeners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I kind of guess they probably don't, but maybe I'm wrong, you know? I guess any underwear can be crotchless underwear if you have a pair of scissors. Well, indeed. So the two stop off at a service station so Minami can phone Ishibashi and give him an update. While this happens, Ozaki flirts with the lorry driver and gets into his cab with him. When Minami sees this, he goes over, drags her out, and beats the lorry driver to within an inch of his life. Now they're still travelling back to see the boss. They spend the night at a hotel. So there's Minami sleeping on the couch. And Ozaki, who is now a young Japanese woman, was his superior, is still his superior, but now in female form. Ozaki offers to share a bed with Minami, but Minami refuses. And, and later, whilst Ozaki is sleeping, Minami goes over and pulls back the covers. I think he's, he's, he's intrigued, mm. perhaps sexually. I think 
sexually intrigued, but also just intrigued, still trying to come to terms with this person is a totally different person now. It's a totally different actor. It's a young woman now rather than a sort of middle-aged guy. And he pulls the covers back and he touches her breast and he he looks at her. And then he, he hears something like a voice coming from her crotch. And it appears to say something about this is the only time we hear this word in the film, gozu. Yeah. And I think it does have that weird quality to the audio that we perhaps talked about at the start of the film. Mm, yeah. Anyway, Ozaki wakes up and she says to Minami that, does he want to have sex? And she seems very uh, keen on that idea. And, and But he, he refuses, but she says, you know, if, if you want to wake me up and have sex, then just wake me up. I'm here. Yeah, but he's just very bashful and apologises for disturbing her. I think as well at this point, the dialogue seems to emphasise that he's continuing to refer to Azaki's brother. Mm. It seems to become more intensified, this idea of brother, because although it's more of a fraternal brother rather than a biological brother, Mm, uh, but it seems to be repeated more at this stage. Yeah, I think this might be a Yakuza thing, because I remember this coming up as a plot point in, appropriately enough, the Takeshi Kitano film Brother, where the term brother is used very much as an honorific between members of the same Yakuza organisation. So I guess it's the same here. I don't know. I would have thought so. It seems very credible. So the following day, Azaki asks Minami to take her to the office. There she has a meeting with Ishibashi, pretending to be the daughter of a business partner. When Azaki asks for a job, Ishibashi takes her back to his flat. Frantic, Minami follows them. Ishibashi gets himself in the mood by selecting his favourite ladle and inserting the handle up his backside. And he has an array of them, doesn't he? Arranged. He does. And they're not just like normally placed on a shelf or anything like that. There's this weird diorama for each one. There's one in a volcano, isn't there, that he selects and it's got hard written in English. Before he and Azaki can take things any further, however, Minami swings down from the roof and tries to kick in a window. Yeah, this does not go well for Minami. Minami has gone up onto the roof. He's tied this length of hose or cable or something to the roof and has come down, swung down, tried to kick in the window. He's just ended up trapped on the outside, dangling over this drop. And so Ishibashi comes along and basically opens the window, drags him and saves him. But Minami is still obviously trying to interfere with whatever is going on between Ishibashi and Azaki. And so the two men come to blows. And you have this amazing scene where Minami pushes Ishibashi backwards and he falls over inevitably. I mean, you can see this coming, uh, no pun intended. And he lands on the ladle and the ladle just gets driven further and further up his backside. And you get this dynamic range of emotions, this absolute bliss, this pleasure, this terror, this pain, confusion, but most of all bliss, as I guess... Ishibashi is having perhaps his ultimate sexual experience with this ladle being driven up almost fatally inside him. It isn't enough quite to finish him off, though, though he does release a lot of liquid in the process. Yeah, it looks kind of like 
gravy, or at least American gravy, is very gray, and I didn't want to think about it too much. <laughs> and Manami decides to finish the job by smashing a light, getting the bare wires, jamming them onto the ladle, and I guess nature takes its course from that point. I'm not sure of the physics of this, but it's a very <laughs> dramatic electrocution, isn't it? It's more like the emperor at the end of Return of the Jedi, isn't he? He's getting all sparks off him from this uh, <laughs> electrified anal ladle. That's the last time I'll say it. Uh, oh, I doubt that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'll wake up at three o'clock in the morning one night just screaming anal ladle. Now, Minami takes Ozaki back to his flat. There, she finally convinced him to have sex with her. And as they do so, however, Minami feels something grabbing hold of him, grabbing hold of his penis. It becomes clear that he tries to pull away from her, and it's like the two of them are glued together. As he backs away, she is pulled with him. I was telling Lucy about this, and she said, isn't that just a common fear with blokes? And I was like, maybe it is, mm. but it's not something I've ever been concerned about. And I guess it might play in with the whole vagina dentata fear. Yeah, I, that's kind of what I figured. What it reminded me very much of was dogs having sex. Right, where they get tied together. Yeah. When I was a kid, our dog, our female dog, got out one day while we were living in rural Switzerland, and we managed to catch her eventually. But she'd found a male dog from a nearby farm. She was obviously in heat. I don't know why we hadn't had a spade, but we hadn't. So the two of them were locked together at this stage. They were back to back, and it wasn't even like classic doggy style. They started off that way, but we tried to break them up. And it was like the two of them were just glued together at the mm. genitals. And my parents were throwing buckets of water over them and shouting at them and trying to scare the male dog off. And If only Minami had somebody chucking a bucket of water over this uh, situation it might not have got worse as it did as minami pulls himself away he looks down in horror and there's a hand coming out of asaki's vagina holding minami's penis and then the hand kind of retracts right this is the bit where well i can remember the first time i saw this and i think I'm just watching it and my jaw is just like dropping. <laughs> yeah. We talk in Call of Cthulhu sometimes about the what the fuck moment, which is kind of a when something happens in the game and it's it has such power that you just go, what the fuck is going on now? It's not the confusion. I think it's just the trying to assimilate everything that's happening yeah. and there's something that undermines your sense of reality or your sense of security so much that you just go, what the fuck is happening? And this scene is probably the strongest example that i can think of in any film that i've ever seen so the yeah. hand retracts and then from between ozaki's legs a head pushes out a full-grown man's head pushes out of her as if she's giving birth to a baby and it's ozaki's head it's the man's head who died earlier in the film remember and has come back as a woman and she is now giving birth to the man that she was before who exudes from out of her birth canal onto the floor in like a covered in like a sticky goo full size man yeah. i think in a suit right i think he's is he dressed i can't actually remember 
in the confusion, I'm not sure if he's naked or clothed. It wouldn't make it any weirder. Well, the, the only thing I can remember that made it ever so slightly weirder was the female Ozaki still wearing those crotchless panties as well. So the head kind of emerging from these pink lace panties is a small thing in a, a scene filled with what the fucks. But I just felt that it like it was the cherry on the cake of what the fuck. Yeah. And also, I think this scene, to me, it's a change in tone. I think there's been mm. a lot of scenes which are weird, often dark comedy, bizarre, uncomfortable. This one is just suddenly he's flipped the switch. It's not funny anymore, to me at least. Yeah, I don't think it's funny anymore. It's turned serious and it's turned very strange. And I think all that almost slapstick comedic stuff, it's hard to find words to describe it, has set us up perhaps for this. But it's a sudden, to me, a change in tone yeah. that makes this even more powerful when it comes. And there's something about the way that it's staged as well, isn't it? For me, the what the fuck moment was the nails breaking uh, yeah. mm. as he tried to drag himself from the body. Just the pure body horror of that. That was the one bit in this whole film that I had to look away from, just because I have a thing about nails breaking like that. And of all the stuff in the film, that's the bit that got to me. Yeah. The way we've described it, you might be visualising a lot of gore and, and so on. But actually in this film, there's very little gore. There's yeah. very little. We don't see very much actual graphic content you know, directly no. on the screen. There is a sense of ecstasy to it, I think, this scene. You know, there is an aesthetic moment. Like you say, it is transformational. Mm. But there is something that just catches your breath isn't there the the, the way that it yeah. plays out and also it's, it's the way the female ozaki is crying out i mean she is crying and moaning and but the screams don't sound like screams of agony i mean definitely pain they're not pleasure but on the other hand tonally they're again just a bit weird well and also up until this point aside from albeit i kind of criticized the use of a dream scene aside from that dream scene have we seen anything in the film which is impossible up to this point? And impossible, I mean, that couldn't happen in the real world. There's strange stuff going on, but the body crushing and the skins, we don't actually see them crush a body and make a skin. They tell us that those are the skins. We don't actually see anything as unquestionably supernatural, if you like, or weird as we do in this scene. I guess the fact that Minami wakes up with the note that he was given in the dream in his hand Mm. definitely does and also a lot of it depends on whether you accept to the point that it comes up whether the female ozaki is actually ozaki and the fact that she knows all these things those two things between them are clearly dream logic and impossible and similarly i mean the, the i mean i've joked about it before but the scene with the shitting ghost as well just the fact that he's suddenly there in a door that we'd never saw before and then just suddenly seems to be gone again these are all things that belong in dreams not in the waking world mm. yeah and she disintegrates and she is part of this process and uh, we have a voiceover telling us that the Azaki will be fine after a bath. She has a bath at the end, and yes. that seems to hydrate her. Uh, so you can see Azaki walking down the street arm in arm with a male counterpart. So the three of them and Minami. And then this is what I think. This is where the weird old customer at the diner laughs at the camera momentarily. I think that's telling us that the chicken custard <laughs> caused this hallucination from him. So I think the 
the Guzu dream is actually a dream within a dream and that he is over the toilet bowl in the uh, the diner. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I guess there is nothing before the chicken custard scene that is impossible or the... I mean, there's lots of weird stuff, like the woman in the white car. Well, actually, no, there is also the sudden appearance of the lake and the road as well. So, I mean, there's definitely dream logic and impossible things, or at least very unlikely things, happening before then. But it does certainly shift gear from that point, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of those things are unlikely, like the road ending and there being a river or something. But, I mean, it's not impossible. When they panned back, it looked like that was an actual location, probably. What I'd assumed when I looked at it, first of all, was that it was a bridge that had been washed out by a river. Mm. But then when I paid more attention, I looked at it and the water was still. So that seemed less likely. So, yeah, I didn't know quite what to make of that. You can use the phrase Lynchian, can't you? That kind of oh, description yeah. of some of the scenes in here, the scene that you mentioned about the subtitle, the, the cue cards, and that that feels very Lynchian, doesn't it, with the broken Japanese? But it somehow it doesn't have the same quality as Lynch, The how this is done. It's not got the same lucidity, I, I'd say. No. I did read uh, one review of this where the critic was arguing that Mikey and Sato had created this as a parody of Lynch. Yeah, I don't know if there's any evidence for that. I mean, I, I can almost imagine it. Mm. I can kind of imagine that being the case. I'm not sure that adds anything to it for me. Mm. So now we have to think about how we can steal some of this stuff for games. <laughs> yeah. Because this is a gaming uh, podcast. Come on, let me let me see the magic work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, don't I think we're know. defeated on this one. Um, no, no, we're not. No, Scott says. No. I'm sure we'll be fine here. Obviously, the main thing that I think we can steal is the presentation of dream logic in this. I mean, this is something we talked about before when we've discussed David Lynch, when we've discussed Robert Aikman, that whole feeling of trying to present dream logic as real within a game, whether it is a game set in the dreamlands or whether you're just trying to create something very weird. I think there is stuff that we can take from this. I mean, I keep going back to it, but that scene with the shitting ghost, it is absurd. It's quite crass but just the concept of it leaving the scatological aspect of it aside that character we spoke to before he's been dead for three years now that we've mentioned him oh look he's over there behind that door that we haven't seen before then we suddenly carry on with our conversation it's not like he's ever been there and that is to me one of the most perfect ways of making this feel dreamlike that i can imagine if you were trying to capture something like that in a game, using that as a template, perhaps leave the scatological aspects of it out because that's got to break the mood. But you know, otherwise, it's really, I'd say, quite unsettling. And I think there's a lot of inspiration you can take for perhaps bouts of insanity in this, where you could probably just select a random scene and, and get yeah. some sort of inspiration for strange events, strange characters. Definitely. Those characters at the cafeteria or restaurant that he visits there is a feeling in this i find as i'm watching it is there a deeper meaning to these various things it's very hard to tell if there is or if it is just a string of bizarre incidents 
Well, I think the fact that Sato wrote this sort of as a stream of consciousness thing means that, yeah, it can be viewed as just one weird thing after another, but it does have that dreamlike cohesiveness to it. And I think it's one of these things where, like with any surrealist work, be it, say, the films of Louis Buñuel or a surrealist art or writing, God help me, years back, I read André Breton's Soluble Fish, which I wouldn't recommend to anyone, which is a novel written entirely through automatic writing. And you find these these threads, these elements that come through even the most surreal work that provide cohesion because they are coming out of someone's subconscious and the subconscious is trying to, I guess, communicate some kind of meaning through them, even if that meaning isn't immediately apparent to the person who is writing it or creating it. I think from some of the things well, some of the discussions we've had, Paul, I think that ties in very much with the process that David Lynch uses, doesn't it? I mean, I think so. It's kind of hard to say because Lynch doesn't talk a lot about that, does mm. he? But he certainly seems to do things at times intuitively. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think so. I think he, he reacts on a kind of an, an emotional level, perhaps, to, to things yeah. and images that somehow kind of resonate with him. And I think that's a harder thing to pull off in a game because players will always ask why. And if there isn't mm. an answer to that, then it can be quite difficult. But if you get the right players, if you get the right buy-in, then using that stream of consciousness, weirdness, and just trusting your subconscious to come up with the right things on the spot if you're spitballing and improvising. And I've done that in a number of games, and it can work very well sometimes. But you just need to make sure you're playing with people who don't demand a rational or coherent explanation for things. I have a couple of things that I took from it that I thought would be useful for games. First of all is the um, setup for a one-shot. It's quite a good idea of having a body disposal. Uh, mm. You get interrupted by something and the body's gone. So the next yes. uh, motivation is to find where it is and mm. that can t take you into a stage of weirdness. So that, I think, would be a good situation for a one-shot. But I think the locations that he uses in this film are fantastic. And if you could use elements of that within the game, you would create a lot of depth and uh, points of interest for characters to a uh, place to inter interact with i mean the cafeteria uh, we forgot to mention as well as all the kind of frames within frames there's uh, taxidermy as well isn't there oh, and yes. strange paintings on on the wall and they do the gangster thing of meeting and rendezvousing in remote edge of town liminal places he's in a parking lot with carrier bags that are on poles like flags that are just flapping in the wind and have no mm -hmm. relevance. And they're on the edge of town with no cellular signal. So yes. he's remote, he's on his own. And they're perfect locations uh, to put into your games. Mm. What you were talking about there with the body disposal, if you wanted to set up a scenario like that, another thing I'd recommend drawing upon is back in the 90s, Charlie Higson, who you might remember as being one of the the stars and the writers of The Far Show, wrote this series of really strange, dark, weird thrillers, one of which was filmed by Stuart Gordon, of all people, called King of the Ants. But he wrote this book called Getting Rid of Mr. Kitchen, 
which is about a guy, if I remember correctly, he's trying to sell his home and he gets this really irritating time waster come round who basically just seems to be there to ruin his day. And there's a scuffle and he accidentally kills the guy. The rest of the book is just about his increasingly desperate attempts to get rid of Mr. Kitchen's body. It's dark, it's funny, it's weird, and I imagine if you were doing something like this, you could just rip off whole chunks of that wholesale. Yeah, I think the idea of missing people can be good for a scenario setup. You know, there's somebody you're trying to find, that's always a good one. Mm. But a missing dead person kind of adds (laughs) another level to it. Did they walk away? Did they get themselves away? Did they come back to life? You know, there's all those kind of questions that we have with Ozaki in this film, like when he disappears from the car. Did somebody take him or did he come back to life and wander off? Or was he dead at all? Did he just seem to be dead? I think that's a a great premise for something to happen in a Call of Cthulhu scenario. The other inspiration I suggest is, as I mentioned, I did Google Gozu just to try to work out what the word meant, and it led me to that thing about Japanese urban legends and that Gozu urban legend. But there is a page on Wikipedia that is just full of Japanese urban legends, some of which are mundane, some of which are supernatural. And I guess it's because of the cultural differences and the fact that they're not the kinds of urban legends that we've grown up hearing. But they all seem just so fucking weird that I imagine each one would be absolutely rich inspiration for a scenario. I'll link to that from the show notes. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. First of all, thank you to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us in this stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by writing handwritten notes and handing them to them in their dreams. We'll thank them now as well. All right. Well, a big thanks going out to Thomas Schwenderman. And thank you very much to Joe McMahon. And thanks to Ronald Lewis. Thank you, Mike Simone. Thank you, Michael Chapman. And thank you very much to Jefferson Donizetti Oliveira. And thanks to Kerem Tugran. And thank you to Rob. And thanks to Marco Goebel. And thank you, Roderick Merringer. And thanks to Sina Mayo. Aha, uh-huh. and here's a familiar name. Thank you very much to the Lovecraft Tapes. If you've not listened to the Lovecraft Tapes, they're an actual play podcast who've been going for some time, who have got a very funny, witty approach to Call of Cthulhu. I'm always impressed at just how sharp and snappy their dialogue is. They've done a playthrough of one of my scenarios, Hell in Texas, a while back, and I did even do an interview with them a while back, which I'll link to from the show notes. And thanks to Thomas Elliott. And thank you, Kevin Hards. Thanks to Zion J. And thank you to Paul Tunnelly. And thanks to Rachel Romanowski. And thank you very much to Charles L. Taylor Jr. And thanks to Liam O'Connell. And thank you very much to Hilmar Emstrand. And thanks to Derek Robertson. And finally, thank you very much, Nathaniel Burgess. Well, we've survived Gozu. <laughs> but have we? Did we really? Are you sure we haven't just dreamt the whole thing? <laughs> uh, how do you feel about it now, Dirk? When we talked about doing uh, gangster films, 
You said, let's do Dozy. <laughs> yeah. It's all Dirk's fault. It's all his fault, sir. Yeah, I should put a disclaimer here, I think. I haven't seen the film before. I just think it sounded interesting. <laughs> Indeed it was. I've been proved correct. <laughs> Paul and I had both seen it before. I just assumed you had as well and had picked it deliberately because you thought it was in our wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> well, for uh, dinner this evening, I'm having soup, but I think I'll pour it from the pan uh, this mm. evening. Yeah. Are you going to add some custard powder? <laughs> I might do. <laughs> I think, you know, all the good friends can now celebrate Christmas with some nice turkey custard. <laughs> Have it seasonal. Gobble, gobble. Well, is there anything else you'd like to say, Dirk? In your defence. <laughs> <laughs> my defence. I just have to say thank you very much for having me on and get well soon, Matt. It's been great being a stand-in, but I'm looking forward to hearing Matt come back. And I hope that people seek out the Grognard Files and give it a try. We do have a few episodes that deal with Call of Cthulhu, and so hopefully you'll find something of interest there. So thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much for helping out. And yeah, thank you very much for getting us to talk about Gozu, because I've enjoyed that thoroughly. <laughs> and I will add my personal recommendation. Yes, go off and listen to the Grognard Files. It is bloody marvellous. Oh, thank you. Well, you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a good night from me. And cheerio from me. And adios amigos from me. Hello. Blasphemoustomes.com I think we did okay with that, did you?